From The Little Mermaid to this year's Oscar-nominated Moana, they are legends of Disney animation. Directors Ron Clemens and John Musker and producer Osnat Schur. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. We're continuing on with more Oscar-nominated guests this season, and this time it was particularly special because I was actually in the room with them when they received the news of their nominations, but you'll hear that great moment later on in the show. Moana, or Vajana as it's called in many countries here in Europe, is already a huge box office success stateside and praised for its incredible visuals and really inspiring female protagonist. It's a mythic adventure set around 2,000 years ago across a series of islands in the South Pacific. We follow the journey of a teenager named Moana. She's voiced by newcomer Ollie Cravalo as she embarks on a quest across the Pacific Ocean to save her people. With her, she has the help of shape-shifting demigod Maui, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'm not going on a mission with some little girl. This is my canoe, and you will journey to different... did not see that coming. The ocean is a friend of mine. First, we've got to go through a whole ocean of bad... Kakamora. Kako, what? They're kind of cute. The music of Moana is also something very special. One of the composers, Lin-Manuel Miranda, started working on the film nearly three years ago, before and during his incredible rise to total stardom with Hamilton. Now he's Oscar-nominated for one of his songs in the film, How Far I'll Go. And it is now a possibility that he will become one of the exclusive few to have the coveted and rare EGOT status. That means with an Oscar win, he will have an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. I was very pleased to meet our guests, directors Ron Clemens and John Musker, here in Stockholm, where they were also holding an animation masterclass. Clemens and Musker are real legends in their field and have worked together at Disney for 40 years. Animators, writers, and directors, Ron apparently started drawing at the age of two, and John Musker graduated from CalArts together with John Lasseter, CEO of Pixar and now also of Disney Animation Studios, and with Tim Burton in a class behind him. Musker and Clemens' collective CV as directors reads like a map of our Disney movie childhood. They started with The Great Mouse Detective in 1986. And then in 89, with their incredible work and the success of The Little Mermaid, they were arguably responsible for resurrecting Disney's feature animation that had been in a bit of a slump and ushering it into the rise of modern feature animation that we're used to today. Their work also includes Aladdin, Treasure Planet, Hercules, and The Princess and the Frog. And now with Moana, they've directed their first CG animated film. And later in the show, we'll meet producer Osnot Schur. She was one of the heads of Pixar Animation short films, and she also has consulted on Aardman Animations. Now, with Walt Disney Animation Studios, she brings us one of the most interesting badass female leads with Moana. I talked to her about producing this movie and how the Pixar-Disney merger 10 years ago changed Disney and animation forever. 
We met at a hotel in Stockholm, a cold day last week. A bit of a contrast from the first research trip that they took to the Pacific Islands, when John Musker first had presented his ideas for Moana to John Lasseter, and he sent them off for research. I started by asking John Musker and Ron Clemens how that research trip formed and changed the script and idea of the story. Before the trip, um, the character of Maui existed, and, and John had read about uh, Maui, this incredible demigod with his superpowers and his tattoos and his magical fish hook. And I had read those stories, and we fashioned uh, a story really based on the character of Maui. Yeah, the initial uh, pitch was Maui centric. Uh, he was he was the protagonist, the main character of that story, um, and it, it cobbled together a few of the Maui myths into into a story. Then we went on the trip and we learned about uh, the importance of navigation to the culture and how much a big part it was of, of even their cultural identity, that they were the greatest navigators the world had ever known. We learned about their deep connection to the ocean and they talked about the ocean as if it were alive, as if it had feelings. And we sailed with a Fijian uh, fisherman uh, who patted the ocean and he said, you have to speak gently to this ocean. Mm -hmm. And we learned about um, the importance of interconnectedness, families that re importance of respect for nature, respect for the ocean, the, the, the uh, importance of knowing your mountain, which is everything that came before you, that um, if you don't know where you came from in terms of your history and your legacy, your heritage, you don't know who you are, that that's so many of those things then um, really kind of transformed our way of thinking. And, and uh, um, we felt that there was so much from that trip that we wanted to get into the story. So really the story of this young girl, Diana, the 16-year-old girl, who uh, was very connected to her past and to the legacy of, of, um, of, of navigation and sailing in a world where, where that stopped. Um, and then, uh, then her mission uh, to try to save her world and, um, and interacting with this demigod. Maui was really the only thing from the earlier version that stayed in the so story. So all this came to it. Right. Yeah, the, the, really, the movie that yeah. exists was really inspired pretty much from, from that trip, from that, yeah, that first yeah. trip. If we had not taken that trip, yeah, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have taken that approach at all, really. Right. Yeah. You guys have been in the business for 40 years together. I mean, more, but together 40 yeah. years. And, but this is your first digital um, right, film, yeah. your first CG. You've done hand-drawn films. What was the most challenging going into this? Well, it was challenging for us just to learn this new pipeline because there are certain jobs that exist in CG that don't exist in hand-drawn. So that was one basic thing. Another was... Uh, so much of our film was set on water, and water is hard to do, hand-drawn or CG, but particularly the richness that we wanted to get into this, and we wanted the ocean to be alive and to be a character in the movie. That had never really been done before to something to this extent in CG even. So that was the biggest sort of technical challenge, I would say, in some ways. Um, and then uh, we discovered there were certain things that CG didn't do as easily as 2D. One of them is actually uh, metamorphosis and transformations. When... When we did Aladdin, you know, the genie could transform mm -hmm. all over the place. And basically, Eric Goldberg would just draw the genie in a different way, and you, could, you were ready to go. But in CG, every time Maui would transform into a different creature, I think they had to build a whole new model, and they had to rig it. And if he was a hawk, they had to build literally every feather on that hawk. And it was really much more involved than it had it been a hand-drawn film. So it's so actually more time-consuming. It actually was more time-consuming. Ironically, it was more time-consuming, which was the wrong way. There were things certainly that are easier to yeah. do um, uh, in, in digital. And, and with the camera movement, the incredible kind mm -hmm. of ways you can move the camera, 
we can get stuff with lighting that, that we couldn't possibly use, the textures of, of all the costumes and the fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, the detail of the uh, hair, the movement of the hair. The hair was like a character in the movie. And the water. And the water. If you had a because I remember seeing The Little Mermaid and all of yeah. them going, this water is amazing. And then yeah. Get Nemo, this water is amazing. Yeah. You guys keep making the I know, yeah, I know. We'll be in it. I know, I know. <laughs> it gets literally more immersive than ever, I think. So and, you want to dive into it. Yeah. certainly one of the big reasons, I think, that came to the feeling that this movie really needed to be digital, mm-hmm. digital because... Uh, we could never have realized the water to that to that extent that it is. But you did mention Eric Goldberg. Yeah. Because he is actually involved in this one as he well. He is, and yeah. He did the tattoos. He did, yeah, Minnie Maui, the tattoo. We and wanted to get a hand-drawn are, element. Mm. And uh, tattoos are very, are a very graphic thing anyway. They really, you know, they, they exist almost as drawings, as uh-huh. two-dimensional designs. So it seemed natural to do that in hand-drawn animation. And we've worked with Eric on a number he's of films. He's a legend. He is a legend, and we think he's one of the greatest hand-drawn animators ever, anywhere, and the idea of being able to use his great talents, uh, we were thrilled to do that. And it was really fun that a lot of the animation staff at Disney that was actually pretty young, and, and the digital animators we had not worked with before, and, and Eric had not worked with before, and they had, a lot of them had grown up seeing like Little Mermaid and yeah, Aladdin, your movies. Yeah. and, and um, so it was really fun for them to work with Eric and and and, uh, and learn from Eric as as. Uh, as with, with and, and, and we thought early in this production that the tattoos would move and help tell Maui stories on mm-hmm. him. But the idea of this one tattoo being sort of singled out and being kind of his alter ego, that, that wasn't there at the beginning. Uh-huh. It was really partly during the film as we developed more, uh, as was being storyboarded, really. Then the idea came, what if you really had really one kind of alter ego that was really his most critical, kind of confident, kind of like a Jiminy Cricket. It was a way of softening uh, Maui a little bit because he was such a curmudgeon and sort of full of himself that the tattoo could kind of puncture that ego and also could be more of a friend to Viana and be kind of an intermediary to take her side in the middle of arguments right, and things right. like that. So it just gave us opportunities for entertainment and things. And so that gave Eric way more to animate, basically. And then he also did the animation at the beginning of the movie where we had the tapa, which is like the, the bark cloth that oh, right, they turn right. into mm-hmm. almost fabric or prints. And, and we wanted to tell our sort of once upon a time story on tapa. So we had, you know, the island of Tafiti rise up yeah. and so Eric did awesome. all that animation. That was all hand-drawn, yeah. And you guys were mentioning that you did, we were talking about you're going to the Pacific Islands and that the culture was so important to you. And I guess cultural appropriation has been something people have talked about a lot yeah. in movies. Just yeah. Cameron Crowe was very criticized for yeah, casting I know, for Joyce in the logo of How have things changed in the animation business during your 40 years thinking about things like that? And what was your approach to yeah, well, Moana or Viana? Well, yeah. well, this film, like you say, that, that first trip was a very inspiring to us and we met so many incredible people we were welcomed into villages and they said you were part of our community now so i think we felt a responsibility even just from that trip from the people we met we we met an elder in tahiti named papa mape who said to us for years we've been swallowed by your culture one time could you be swallowed by our culture mm-hmm. and we we uh, we took that to heart we really wanted the movie to be respectful and to uh, to be truthful in a way that the people from the islands could see the movie and see that that we were really trying to make something that they could feel very good about and feel very proud of and in the um, voice casting as well. the voice casting we really went we wanted to have an all polynesian cast as much as we could we didn't have to it wasn't a mandate but we just thought wouldn't it be great because you'll get in you know, get not only some accents that come from the audience, but just sort of sensibilities and and that approach. So 
in the case of the character of Ayana, there was a long sort of search. You know, we had over 600. It was an open call, and we thought it's going to be someone unknown. And so we had actresses in all the way across the Pacific, from uh, New Zealand to Samoa, and ultimately then in Hawaii, where we found uh, Rachel Sutton, our casting director there, found Ali Cravalho literally on the last day of casting. Mm -hmm. And she was such a godsend. She really, uh, her own characteristics of fearlessness and her wit and her uh, spark really helped make the character into what, what she turned into. And, and then uh, Dwayne Johnson, we thought of him right away because we knew of his Samoan roots. And he is sort of a demigod of the entertainment <laughs> industry. So it wasn't too much of a stretch to picture him being a demigod in our movie as well. So, But have you, do, you think, do you feel that these, we think about these things more today than you did? I think we do. I mean, I don't think, you know, certainly uh, even like when we did Little Mermaid, it was interesting. We... You know, it's Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale didn't seem totally grounded in the world of Denmark to us necessarily. And even Howard Ashman, when he wrote the music, one of his first questions to us, because his idea, thinking about Little Mermaid and the seaside motif, was he wanted to work in reggae and calypso music into the movie because it felt like the seaside, the ocean, and it had a way of contemporizing the story. And he said to us, literally on the phone when we were first developing, he said, now you guys aren't thinking this is strictly Denmark, are you? Because I want to use some reggae clothes. And we said, no, we think of it sort of a fairy tale thing. Nowadays, though, with more sensitivity, maybe we'd have to think twice about that. I don't know. But I, I hope that there's enough liberty in the development of stories that some stories are grounded heavily in the culture and others can be more loosely inspired by it. I think it, it depends on the story. And I, mean, would, I would, would have missed it. the Calypso. Wouldn't you? I mean, Danish yes, music. Yes, would you like Danish music? No. I don't know. I think Calypso was the <laughs> way to go. We don't have to go that far. I, I, I think that's what I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly bound. I agree. That shouldn't be uh, a flat. I mean, one you know, one new complete. thing with the internet is is um, speculation that people know about the movie pretty early on. Mm -hmm. um, um, there are people just just chat on the internet and and uh, and 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 things can sort of uh, take hold and and without people even having seen the movie, they they start to project mm -hmm. on what the movie is, and that's kind of a new experience. For, for us, it's been a really great thing that um, now we've been able to go to the Pacific Islands and we've shown the movie uh, to our story. Trust many people from the Pacific Islands. We were in Samoa just a few weeks ago, and, and uh, it's been very gratifying because people... Just people, really, yeah, just regular people, not people connected to the movie who have seen it now, have been really embraced the movie and felt like it reflects people they know and their culture. And, and I, even our, like our casting director, we had one who was in a Maori woman, uh, Christina Asher, and... I just uh, spoke with her via email, and she said she's very proud to be a part of the movie and to hearing kids from her culture sing these songs that celebrate things about their culture. Right, so right. I think that's a cool thing, and right. we, you know, we didn't know if that would happen or not. And I think the movie became a richer movie for the participation of those people, and they just there were story ideas and thematic ideas that grew out of the trip and things that they told us that we would never have had otherwise. So it was a good thing in this case, I think. And on another note, what how what advice can you give for working together for forty years? I mean, most of us would like to stay married yeah, for yeah. half that time. I know it's uh, <laughs> and it happens. I know, I know. I was saying I joke because I'm I've been married to my uh, real life wife for thirty seven years, and I've been married to him for thirty plus years. All so right. it's a. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's like any marriage, I guess. There's give and take. You know, it's not always uh, smooth sailing. There's sometimes where. We argue, we bicker occasionally. Saying, yeah, the secret is never to argue. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah. We, we actually never do. No, we you always don't. argue. We always uh, argue. We <laughs> bicker, you're uh, already arguing. I know, we always <laughs> argue. And there's a, the well, we have this we kind argue. of Darwinian process what do you a little argue bit. About? I mean, well, sometimes I mean, it can be. Usually not the big things, which is a good thing, I think, that, that the overall 
I think we always have felt kind of that our tastes are similar enough that we're, and our tastes in entertainment, that we're basically trying to make the same movie. But specifics we can argue all the time. In some ways it was, uh, I don't want to say easier, but we, in the movies all the way up until this one, the movie was divided into sequences, and he would direct certain sequences, and I would direct the others. And we would collaborate on many things, but we, working with the animators and the lab people for certain sequences, we each had our own sort of teams that would do things and give us some autonomy within the big thing. And this one, because of the nature of CG, we didn't do it that way. And we both directed all the animators together, and we both did more together in a way. But, but we survived the process. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, we will, as we say, we discuss things, and often uh, a stronger argument wins. You know, you, hear, you use people as a sounding board. He uses me, and, and we have other artists in the room, the heads of animation or different departments who mm-hmm. weigh in. We had co-directors on this one as well. And so I, people had an opinion, and you'd get to sort of hear different ideas and then just sort of decide what you thought was yeah. the right thing and to I do. And I haven't gone to the Pacific Islands with my husband, so you get to do some nice yeah, things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, and actually my, our wives did not get to go with us, yeah, so they're very they're angry not, about they're that. Not, that. They're not we went that, and they yeah. didn't get to go, so I'm hoping we to take a vacation we there with my wife. And, yeah. they, and they still didn't get to go. Yeah. So. I would like to know, um, it's been about 10 years, I think, since um, John Lasseter yeah, it's came been to... Right, about 10 years. 11 years now, Something like that came in to... Disney. Disney, yeah. What did he bring to the table? What do you see some of the changes? Well, he, he's a filmmaker. I mean, he I went to school with John at CalArts, but he really, he's a storyteller and he relies on his own sense of taste. He doesn't, you know, try and triangulate as some people do in the industry where they like try and read the trends or, or do a focus group on what they like. It's really very much a gut thing with him. It entertains me or it doesn't. Unfortunately, his own tastes are shared by many people throughout the world. He loves animation, and he loves Disney. He grew up a big fan of Disney, as we did, so... Um, uh, it's he's he's very sort of passionate and very enthusiastic. He's he's great to work with and creatively he's 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 really really strong. Uh, I think he really Disney was really kind kind of going through a very rough period uh, before the transition happened, where mm-hmm. Disney bought Pixar, and John came to Disney mm-hmm. as well as still heading up Pixar. So um, I think the fact that I and I think. The movies have gotten better and better, and and that and he he's always aiming high quality is, is so important to him that uh, uh, I think he's really yeah he keeps working at these movies both story wise even on a visual front to to make them as strong as they can possibly be and so that has made these movies go through this uh, you know they they don't they they keep you keep trying to improve the movie basically you don't settle too soon you really keep it in flux for as long as you can in some ways in which. Animation can do maybe better, more easily in some ways than live action can, and maybe live action could learn something from this process. But it is, uh, it, I think the movies have uh, the qualities of the movies have been very high, and that it's no accident that John was sort of. But at that's the helm. kind of what he did then when he came when Disney was in that little. Yeah. Thing. He worked on stories. Stories was really yeah. I would say more than any sort of technical thing or uh, production value or any of that sort of thing. It was really but, the story yeah. aspect I mean, of it, I would things, say. The one is just he himself is very creatively strong. He has good ideas. His notes are good. But also he and Ed Cavill, I think, to um, to make the environment um, um, as healthy as possible creatively so that everybody helps everybody else. So we feel kind of like there's an atmosphere now where we're all in this together. We want each film to be as good as it possibly can. Yeah. Well, I think we have an announcement. Would you like to yeah. And it's Congratulations, gentlemen. On which part of this? Two nominations from Wana. Woo! Feature and song. Feature and song. How far? Feature How far and go? song. Yeah. Oh, hey. did, did La La Land yeah. get, get two? Yes. 
Congratulations! That's two nominations. We need hugs. <laughs> Christina, give me a hug. I will absolutely give you a hug. So Thank you. So well deserved. I knew it. You guys were like, "Thank you, it's going to happen." I knew it. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't comment. So it's very nice. So, what do you know? What the other feature nominees were? Songs were Zootopia, Kubo, Zucchini. Austin, then one more. Wait, we're going to Zucchini, Kubo, Zucchini, and one more. Which was? Was it a red turtle? I'm guessing. Red turtle. That's amazing. I'm so happy. And is that Lin Manuel then? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah he did that song. Obatai didn't work on that song, so it just right. be really not See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me. And no one knows how far it goes. If the wind in my sail on the sea stays behind me, one day I'll know. If I go, there's just no telling how far I'll go. So it's EGOT time for Lin-Manuel. Well, he's hoping, but you never know, because, you know, La La Land has kind of come on strong where it's won some of these direct competitions. With, but it would be wonderful if Lin won. I think he deserves to, even though I love La La Land. I think Lin did such an amazing job on that song. But this is not the first nominee. You guys were nominated. We were nominated yeah, on before. Tre Treasure, Planet, Treasure Planet. Planet. Yeah. Treasure Planet. Um, yeah. They didn't have the Academy the Academy Animation category before that. Um, Until around the yeah, 2000, so I think We've been nominated started. for Golden Globes when they used to have the <coughs> Best Musical or Comedy category, which they still have that category, but, but then they the created the Special animation, animation category. I think my time is up, but it was okay. super exciting to get yeah. to be here on that last one. <laughs> And now it was time for me to sit down with producer Osnot Schur, who was receiving a flurry of text messages from very important people congratulating them on the Oscar nomination. Little texts are starting to come in from all the people who are oh, up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Congratulations. I'm so happy for it. No, but this is so great. It so is, congratulations for this nomination. How do you feel? It's so excited. You know, it's it's. Um, I think it's a, um, a story that is important to tell, and it's important to me that it gets the kind of the mainstream acknowledgement it should get, uh, in part because I believe that we can tell amazing stories about main characters of any gender, mm -hmm. and I'd love, I love to see that reinforced, and also because we made this film in such um, active collaboration with the people of the cultures that inspired it, right, and it, again, it's something I would love to see encouraged, and so this is always something that helps you know, when you get this kind of acknowledgement from your community, it always helps to encourage um, some of our some of what of we put into the making of the movie. Because I was thinking about that. You you address in the film in such a great way the princess trope. Um, this is a really kick-ass female character. You're a female producer. How important have these themes been to you? And, and has this been a change in animation, uh, in the business of animation, to talk so much about the female character and, and, and how to make... It's interesting um, because I think we're in some way a reflection of our times. I think when Ron and John made uh, The Little Mermaid, at the time that was pretty radical, that she had uh, her own intention, but her intentions were very much about herself. And here, our main character, her intentions are about the world, about taking care of the world. There's something very um, incredibly uplifting about that to me. To me, it's been very important from the beginning of making the film that we treat her with the same respect we would treat protagonist of a story like this. It's a, it's a hero's journey. She's a hero. Her, her mission is no less than saving the world. The stakes are very, very high. 
her own inner journey is one of, um, you know, everyone around will, will tell you who they think you should be, which is true for boys or girls, mm-hmm. men and women, but I think has been something that as women we face a lot more. People have more opinions about who we should be. And um, her story is connecting to her own inner voice. And so it was very important to me that one, that is, she relies on herself mm-hmm. and her answers come from within herself, um, which means that there's really not the kind of story that needs romance. It really, first of all, it did not need one more layer, but it also, uh, who's got time for romance? She has to save the world, you know? And we all have so many other parts to ourselves, and it has been very eye-opening for me how often I've been asked about the lack of romance in the film. Oh, really? Because if it was a male protagonist, I wouldn't be getting that question, right? So it's been very interesting. I think... It shouldn't be radical, but it is mm-hmm. to have a female protagonist, particularly in animation, who's this strong, just in general as a character, I love her. I love the um, balance of kind of compassion and emotional intelligence that she has with strength and determination and courage. And um, yeah, I was very vocal throughout, often being the only woman in the mm-hmm. creative room. Um, we had a wonderful um female head of animation as well. I had mm-hmm. some wonderful strong women mm-hmm. surrounded by. But to to remind people constantly that she is a warrior, mm-hmm. that she has power. We designed her to have that power, and she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't compromise her beauty to give her a very athletic ability. And um, when you make a movie like this, it's not just the male-female thing. It's also the magical character tends to try to steal the movie. Right. They just do. Right, right, right. And if they happen to be a giant demigod who can shapeshift, you really, and played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you really have That's somebody. That's competition. Yes. And so we wanted Viana to be um, someone strong. And then when we when we cast her, when we found Ali, who has that spirit, even though she was 14 when we first um, cast her for the, for the role, she held her own. Mm-hmm. We'd tease her, she'd tease right back. Mm-hmm. I had her in the same room with Dwayne, who's a superstar where she grew up in Hawaii. They adore him and really look up to him. Yeah, with his roots and stuff. Yeah, and they're both Polynesian. Mm-hmm. She held her own and teased right back, and, and just like the character. Yeah, she did. And it was something very important to us to find... To not let, you know, we, we agonize over the story so much. We, we have nine screenings. We, we spend time with other directors and all that. So we tear it apart. We mm-hmm. bring it back. And so very often the story would start to move in a direction where suddenly she didn't have as much agency. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, yes, I would always, even when it was not the popular thing to do, um, speak up about that. I want to move on to another huge star who became a huge star after you started, and that's Lin-Manuel Miranda, oh, yeah. who also is Oscar-nominated <laughs> yes, now. Yes, that's who I just texted. Oh, great. Oh, so you just texted yes, Lin-Manuel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him we're all excited. But when you started, um, he Hamilton had not happened. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little why you, what you, why, why we you chose guys, him. Yeah. What were you so doing? we went to uh, New York uh, to meet, with, to go to a lot of musicals, and to meet with many what we wanted is we thought all right the way to approach this is similar take inspiration from the lion king so in the lion king elton john um was one side of it and then lebo m who came from south africa and has this african roots brought the music to where it needed to be and one of the glues of that also was um the composer mark mancina 
And we wanted to have Mark anyway. Mark joined us. He's, he's a wonderful composer. So he served that role on our movie as well. We had found Opataya Fua'i, who is a Pacific Islander, has a band called Tevaka. They're huge in the kind of the world music scene. Deep roots from the Pacific. He was born and raised there. His parents are Tuvalu and Tokelau. He's, he lived the life that we convey mm-hmm. in the movie. And um, I listened to a lot of music when I first joined the movie played it for Ron and John. They said yes. Mm-hmm. Called him up. He came over. It was amazing. And we knew we needed then the third and very important member of this triumvirate is somebody who has great skill at uh, musical storytelling, songs that tell story. And we had listened to In the Heights, mm-hmm. which was uh, um, a musical that Lynn won a Tony for. And it was bilingual. It was one of the things I loved about it very much. He was, he was comfortable moving between Spanish and English. And um, then he'd also written the opening songs for the Tonys, mm-hmm. and they were very funny. Mm-hmm. Ron John loved the humor in that, and I did too. And so we met with about nine or ten different people, mm-hmm. and there was something about Lynn that stood out. The his energy was so fresh, and he's so lovely. But everybody was really nice. It was that facility with the languages, and then just the way he has with words. He can take a huge idea and just find those, you know, four words, how far I'll go, or you're welcome. And that something difficult it. and make it really simple. In simple and yeah. real, yeah. because he's so real himself mm-hmm. and just a lovely, lovely human being to work with as well. So we would we would meet twice a week. He'd be in his dressing room about to go because, on. Because, yeah, at some point, at was some in the point show. You, guys, you guys were like, yeah, okay, and, the, and Hamilton yeah. blows up. Okay, no, he tells me what he's working on, and he says it's a musical on the Founding Fathers at the, at, at, at the Public Theater in, in New York, and I'm like, Two months, we'll have him back. This is, <laughs> this, nobody's going to go to this. And then all of a sudden, it's like Hamilton with He's the world. Huge. So how did that, could you collaborate? And he was still working with he you. He was still he working did. with us. He almost saw um, working with us as his break from the founding fathers and from the history and into that world of the imagination. And we would meet um, twice a week. He'd be in his dressing room dressed like uh, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton with a ponytail and the, and the coat. It would be about an hour before curtain call and we would, we would uh, use technology because Opatia was in New Zealand and, and uh, Mark's in Northern California and he was in New York and we would all meet uh, via technology. And then he would go off and write a song. Usually when he was working on a song, at one point he would go hit an all-nighter mm. and come back with something magnificent. Um, there were some songs written that were deleted that didn't make it into the movie. They're on the extended Yeah, there's a demo CD. tape. Beautiful stuff. It just the story changed, mm-hmm. so um, the song wouldn't, you know, right, right. wouldn't fit anymore. That always happens in musicals, I think. wasn't too bad with us. Or and is it songs. true that the fantastic... Well, you can hear it, but, but um, the Crab song, that it's a Bowie, <laughs> that that was when um, David Bowie passed. He had just passed. It was the and, week after he and passed. And that was such... Yeah. And we wanted, we wanted a, a kind of a show-stopping kind of production number. Um, Ron and John always have it in their movies, and it's that moment where you just get to set the story aside, even everything, the culture, the history, the story, and just go... Have fun. Visually. Yeah, have fun with a crazy villain. And um, and we knew we wanted Jermaine, Jermaine Clement, who's amazingly talented. So And he sings. Um, Flight of the Concords is toured singing, and he has that style. It's very, it sounds a little David Bowie. And so, uh, yeah. So Lynn went off and wrote that song, and we were just like, this is 
Awesome. So we just reorchestrated it a little bit mm -hmm. to bring in some more of the island quality to it. We rewrote parts of it as well because it was running long and and also we needed it to stop in the middle for the story for story purposes. Mm -hmm. But we just went crazy with it and the young man who uh, storyboarded it. He's actually up for an award for his storyboarding on that. He just took it and ran, and then he came with all these very cool ideas, and then, and then our artists came in and started playing it with the reflections, and it all started coming together. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Um, I just want to change um, a little bit of speed, because you're pretty much a Pixar legend yourself after working with the short films, which basically you know, are the foundation for the amazing Pixar features. What would you say, when they came together, Pixar and Disney, what is it, 10 years now? When John yeah, Master exactly 10, yeah. Um, how how did, the, uh, uh, did the outcome become as you hoped, and, and what did Pixar bring to Disney and another way around, would you say? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I was at Pixar at the time, and we were all very apprehensive. We had defined ourselves as sort of the, the little renegade, even though by now we were very successful um, after Finding Nemo and mm -hmm. all these movies, but still we were the renegade and Disney was the establishment. The old, huge. Yeah. Right, right. Everybody came from there practically, or, you know, John was fired from Disney. Everybody had um, Disney roots, and, and Pixar had Disney roots, but they were the establishment, we were the new ones. So it, at first we were very apprehensive there. And then John and Ed Catmull, who's also an amazing, amazing man, um, took over. Walt Disney Animation Studios, and I came to visit at the time when they first started. I was still at Pixar, and John asked me to help with something with the short films there. Oh, speaking of which, John Lasseter, congratulations! Oh, okay, John, John Lasseter just texted in the interview. Speaking of the devil, Aww, my favorite boss of all time. Yes. Um, the, when I first went there, when the when the when the, the merger first happened. It wasn't, there wasn't the happiness and the joy that, that we had already at Pixar and that I know Disney used to have and that we associate with Disney. There was a, a certain, and I think what it was is that there was not um, the kind of creative um, environment that makes movies like, like we make thrive. Mm -hmm. You need to be ha happy people make happy movies, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that there were a lot of... Um, what we in the industry call suits, but um, executives making decisions. And I don't, it felt like there were some of the best directors in the world there, including these guys and, you know, some of the movies that have been made recently. But they did not have the encouragement, the permission, and the leadership that mm -hmm. allows for great creative storytelling. And boy, did that change. I went away for a while. I went back to writing. And so for a while, I took a few years. I was working with Aardman and with other studios consulting and, and developing stories. And then came back um, at John's invitation. And boy, the difference. Yeah. The place is thriving. The, there's such joy. The quality of the work is so good. The directors are, have created this story trust, like the brain trust we had at Pixar. They help each other in ways that is even more than we had at Pixar. Like, somebody who's even in trouble on a movie, somebody else will jump in to help. Because sometimes you work in these movies so long, you lose perspective. Right. There's this generosity. It's in, intense. It's wonderful. That's my sort of, after reading a few books about Pixar, and, you know, that there's all this trust that you work so much on story, and yeah. go over it, go, and then, like, bowls of candy, and people in funny <laughs> shirts. And you just it's like a wonderful place it is to true. work. <laughs> all of that is there. People work very, very hard. Of course. Uh, six days a week, and you know, until eight, nine at night in the last year of this. Mm -hmm. The directors are in there, and I'm in there with them. 
Um, because the different departments have peak moments, but we're at peak all the time right, right. when we're in production. But there's so much joy, and there's um, there's a sense of working on things that um, I think that's true of Disney in the past as well. That what we work on is things people grow up on. You know, yeah. it becomes part of yeah. people's childhood. Everybody who works there grew up on Little Mermaid and Aladdin. So there's that there's that sense of um, the responsibility. And yet, um, we make films to, that uplift us, that make right. us laugh, that make us cry, and you hope that it'll reach others as well. So I have to say the place completely changed, 180 right. degrees, and it feels a lot like Pixar. It's a different atmosphere a little bit in, in that it's singular, that's just made up of the people who are there, but in terms of the creative space and the, the incredible generosity, I think this is something that John... Lassiter has in him that has spread right, right. to all the creative leadership. People are very generous with each other. Something very interesting is happening now, a little bit controversial too, like for example the CG animation of past actors who have passed, like in Star yeah. Wars with, yeah. with Peter Cushing and, and, and um, what do you think, um, how do you feel about that and where do you think animation is going to take us? Well, you know, the animation that I've been part of has always been animation that creates full hand animation, whether it's CG or hand-drawn, and it creates new characters and it creates new worlds. Um, the world of motion capture and of uh, recreating reality is not a world I'm familiar with or drawn to, no. to be honest. I, I um, If you're going to make it look like live action, just do live action. It's yeah, so much easier. <laughs> Because I have this feeling. That's, my, that's that personal. Yeah. My personal feeling. I, and I and I do think we also hit in some of that animation. We hit what what we call the uncanny valley, where it's too close but not close enough, and so you, yeah, stiff. You think and, about it. Yeah, it's not a, for uh, for animators in our world at Disney and at Pixar. Motion capture is almost uh, like a something we don't discuss mm -hmm. because people think of it as animation. It's not. I mean, mm -hmm. these guys work so hard to take a character with just kind of a skeleton and find a way to create expression and make it sentient, which is my favorite moment in the movie when a character you've been working on and working on suddenly looks like they're thinking. Yeah. They're having a thought. They're real. Sure. They're animated. Mm -hmm. That um, once you start going into that in-between land, I'm sure it has its purposes and there's ways that it's going to do great things and certainly if people who are into games love it mm -hmm. for me that world of classic animation even if it's cg if it's cutting edge cg i don't mean that it has to be right, paper right, right. um is about creating something from nothing it's right. about imagining something into being I was just asking uh, Ron and, and John because, I mean, most of us would like to stay married for 40 years. <laughs> um, can you describe a little bit their working relationship or how they are? Yeah. They said they fight a lot, but what's your... Yeah, opinion? they do. Um, they, they are um, really super complimentary. Ron is very focused on the logic of a story, on the kind of almost the foundation of a story and how to keep it moving forward. He's... He, when we start veering away from what a character would do, Ron will call us back. And John will kind of dance around it. He'll improvise, he'll come up with ideas, he'll he'll come up with dialogue, he'll sort of, he'll add all the color to it. And so if one of them has an idea or a reaction, and they're constantly, constantly giving direction, um, if the other just backs it up, no problem. If the other thinks differently, it's either they will talk it through until we reach the right place, or if one of them feels strongly in the other, <laughs> and you, so you can keep moving so there's a lot of compromise 
but much of it is managed by the third person. Yes, I <laughs> that's part of my job. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much to directors Ron Clemens and John Musker and to producer Osnot Schur. Vajana premieres here in Sweden on February 3rd and is in movie theaters stateside already now. Thank you so much to listening to the show. You can visit our website, popcultureconfidential.com. Follow us on Instagram and on Twitter, at podpopculture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.